Well, welcome. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. In the last episode, we wrapped up chapter 2, and we discussed a possible location for the Garden of Eden. We also discussed the creation of Eve and what God laid down as punishment for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which brings us now to chapter 3, which is one of my favorite in all of Scripture. You know, most of our Bible reading, our studying, our church sermons, etc., they're probably spent primarily in the New Testament, you know, reading the Gospels or uh, the several epistles of Paul. So you probably just aren't getting a lot of Bible study in the book of Genesis. And we are all so familiar with this story, particularly of Adam and Eve, that I think even when we do read it again, that we tend to just sort of gloss over these verses with a a superficial reading again because we're so familiar we already know what happened right so we probably just aren't looking to dig a little bit deeper but chapter three here is chock full of lessons and insights that are still very relevant today and i want to begin chapter three actually by rereading two verses out of chapter two because that's where we're going to pick up the action here in chapter three and the two verses out of chapter two that i want to reread are verses 16 and 17 and verse 16 begins, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we talked about what that surely die and the timing of all that in the last episode. But we now pick up in chapter 3, and I want to read the first six verses. And verse 1 begins, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. You know, for so much that's going on here that we can dissect and we can spend a lot of time on, I can't think of a more succinct way to write down all of that than appears here in the first six verses. So let's begin with the serpent, the Nahash. Although not specifically named here, we're going to learn later on, of course, that this is obviously Satan. In Hebrew, Satan or Satan means adversary, persecutor, or accuser. And he's the adversary of God and humanity. And the text tells us that he was more crafty or more subtle than any other beast of the field that God had made. Some translations will render this word as shrewd or cunning, but I think you get the idea. Now, how exactly Satan uses the serpent, we're not sure. I mean, did he embody the serpent somehow, like like a demon embodies a person, or did he merely use the serpent as an instrument of communication? But one thing we do know is Satan's method of attack. The same today as it was in the garden. It worked then, it still works today. Satan's first step is to introduce doubt. Get us to doubt what God said. 
did God really say that? I mean, is that really what he meant? And that's exactly what we see going on here. Second step has us change or amend what God said. And here again, that's exactly what Eve does. I mean, what did God say back up in chapter 2, verse 17? God said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. But Eve adds, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I mean, she's adding the part about touching the fruit. So her response to Satan's line of questioning is to add to, to embellish what God commanded. And we see this happening today. It's no different. You know, God, I know what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. Deuteronomy 4.2 says that you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. But here we see that's exactly what Eve's doing, changing what God said. Satan's third step is direct contradiction, directly contradicting what God said. You know, God said, you will surely die. Satan says, you will not surely die. And this three-pronged attack worked in the garden, still works today. Doubt God's word, then change God's word, and then directly contradict God's word. You know, before I forget, I want to I want to make sure and clear up one common misperception before I forget to mention it. You know, what was it that Adam and Eve were not permitted to eat? The apple, right? No. Bible never mentions an apple here. It says the fruit. We don't know what the fruit was. I mean, chances are it wasn't an apple, but yeah, we don't know that for sure. But somehow the apple's been featured in all sorts of paintings and books, all sorts of works of art. Heck, there's even a, a big company that has an apple as a logo. Even has a bite out of it. You know, I, I wonder sometimes why Satan approached Eve. I mean, why not approach Adam? We're not told why. And also, you know, why did Adam not correct Eve's statement? You know, Eve changed or amended what God said. Why didn't Adam correct her? You know, Scripture doesn't say, but it might have been because he wasn't there at the time. And I know that may not line up with Sunday school coloring books, but sometimes we assume things that aren't in the text because we're used to seeing it in, in art and pictures and in books so often. But perhaps it was because Eve may have received the commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil secondhand. In other words, God told Adam firsthand not to eat of it, but Eve heard it from Adam secondhand and so maybe she was just a little bit more open to suggestion than Adam was. We just we don't know for sure. And as I mentioned, the other thing, we don't know for sure uh, if Adam was even there at the time this conversation was taking place. Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us either way. Now, some argue that he was there based off of the grammatical construction of the Hebrew and the use of plural verb forms, meaning that the serpent used plural verb forms when he said you. You know, kind of like in the South, we say y'all. Um, all it says later on is that Eve took and ate, gave some to Adam who was with her. But we don't even know for sure when Eve decided to eat of the fruit. I mean, we all want to seem to picture everything going down right then and there. As soon as the serpent tells them that their eyes will be open and they'll become like God, like as soon as he finished saying that, Eve reaches up and grabs the fruit and eats it right then and there. But we don't know that. She may have thought about what the serpent said for days or weeks before deciding she was going to eat of the tree. But further down, and, and we won't get there, but 
Further down in verse 17, before God issues his punishment to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, then he goes on. But God didn't say because you listened to the serpent. He said because you listened to your wife. There's an interesting verse in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.14 tells us that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so for these reasons, some believe that Adam wasn't there at the time. But again, we just, we just don't know that for sure. But if he wasn't there, and like 1 Timothy says, he wasn't deceived, then why did he eat? It's a good question. It seems like, you know, we've got three or four possibilities here. I mean, one, Adam was with Eve, and they were both deceived, and they both ate. But 1 Timothy seems to rule that option out. Another option would be that Adam saw Eve eat the fruit, and he saw that she didn't immediately die, and so he ate. A third option might be that Adam was not deceived by the serpent, but then later on he just simply gave in to Eve. But a fourth option uh, is, is interesting as well. There are some who believe that Adam was not there, and when he did show up, Eve had already eaten of the tree. But loving her so much that he willingly chose to join her in whatever punishment would be coming rather than have her face it alone. And the people who make this argument argue that Adam, who we're told was a figure of one who was to come, which was Christ, and we've discussed that already, that Adam was perfect. He was sinless. He was a son of God. He paid for his bride with a wound to his side. He was put to sleep and then brought back. And so we can see how that was a foreshadowing or a, a model of Christ. Well, some take that a step further and argue that here, Adam knowingly and willingly became sin for his bride. Again, just as Christ became sin and died on the cross for us, his bride, the church. So let's talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what exactly are we talking about when we say the knowledge of good and evil? Well, that term, that phrase, is consistently used as a merism. And a merism is just a way of referring to the totality of something by using its extreme. So, for example, to express the idea that you've looked everywhere for something, a merism would be for you to say, look, I've looked high and low. Or in Genesis 1-1 where it says God created the heavens and the earth, it's a merism, meaning everything, everything from heaven to earth, everything in between, all of physical reality. So when we see this phrase, the knowledge of good and evil used here, it's meaning that Adam and Eve would gain a whole range of knowledge but as a merism, it shouldn't be taken to mean that they would gain all knowledge. I mean, they weren't going to be omnipotent or anything. Instead, it's applying to a range of knowledge within a specific category. And in this case, we're referring to good and evil of morality. And this is referring to the human capability to be discriminating. Now, this is an ability, for example, that is lacking in young children. I mean, it's something that you acquire with age and experience as you gain wisdom. But it doesn't suggest that Adam and Eve knew nothing about good and evil before they ate. You see, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good, but it belongs exclusively to God. God is the only objective standard of good and evil. You see, sin consists of a forbidden act of unbelief. It's an assertion of human autonomy, us acting on our free will to know morality apart from God. I mean, sure, we all know some things are wrong, 
by our nature and by our conscience. I mean, we're made in the image of God. We have that capacity. But do we really have the capacity to understand the breadth of all morality apart from God? I mean, God is the standard for objective morality. And without God serving as that standard, morality becomes no longer about right and wrong. It just just becomes a preference like chocolate or vanilla. So why did God not allow them to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? I mean, is knowledge not a good thing? I mean, why was that even prohibited to begin with? You know, that's a fair question. I mean, you know, skeptics and non-believers, they've tried to make this argument that it was wrong for God to punish Adam and Eve for eating from the tree because unless they ate from it, they wouldn't have known the difference between good and evil. In other words, why would God punish Adam and Eve for disobeying him since they didn't know the difference between good and evil? I mean, the only way they would have known is to eat from the tree. Or so the argument goes. I mean, is that accurate? I mean, is that really what's going on here? I don't think so. I mean, for starters, do you think it makes sense for God to give them instructions if they didn't have any idea of the difference between good and evil? I mean, it just seems contrary to the character of God. Remember also, God tells them that if they disobeyed, they would die. And the Bible gives us no indication that they didn't understand what that meant. I mean, they apparently understood what death meant. They understood what obedience was also because Eve explains to Satan that they were not allowed to eat from that specific tree. So they had enough knowledge to understand that they were not allowed to eat from the tree as well as death being the consequence for doing so. I believe what this is about is human autonomy. I mean, Adam and Eve, like all of us, desired to determine for themselves what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. Without the objective standard of morality provided by God. I mean, we want to be the arbiters of truth rather than God. And this is where it'd be easy to digress into a conversation regarding free will. And I'm not going to do that here. But suffice it to say that the only way to have love is to have free will. I mean, love must be given freely. It cannot be coerced. It can't be legislated. The only way true love exists is when the person has a choice. And without a choice to obey or disobey God, there could exist no free will and therefore no love. Adam and Eve, out of love, were given a choice to obey God and live by his morality or disobey God and live by the morality that they would create for themselves. They would determine for themselves what was right and wrong, what was good and evil. It was never about the forbidden fruit. It was about love and obedience and recognizing that God is the source of true morality. It was about trying to determine good and evil apart from God. It was about Adam and Eve determining for themselves what constitutes good and evil. I mean, the bottom line, they decided to take on the challenge of determining for themselves what was morally good and evil. And how is determining morality for ourselves working out so far? I mean, how's it working out for us to determine for ourselves what is good and evil? Maternal news sometime. Anytime. It's working out about the same way it did in the garden. Adam and Eve did what was right in their own eyes. Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And Proverbs 26.10 tells us, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You know, one of the tragedies of sin is the impact it has on your life. 
And in the next episode, we're going to see the spiritual effect of sin, which is man fleeing from God. You see, Adam walked with God. He talked with God, had a relationship with God. But after he sins, what does he do? He flees from God. You see, sin separates us from God. And when you're in any situation and you're considering doing something, ask yourself whether doing it will bring you closer to God or distance you from God because it's going to do one or the other. I had a coach tell me years ago that you never stay the same. You either get better or you get worse every day, but you don't stay the same. And that same thing applies to your spiritual life. You don't stay the same. Every day, you either get closer to God or you grow more distant. One of the ways you grow closer to God is to simply trust Him. Trust that He knows better than you the difference between good and evil. He wants what's best for you because He loves you. And the story of Adam and Eve is the story of us all. We've all decided at times to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong, what's good and evil. We've all taken a bite of the proverbial forbidden fruit and decided that we knew better than God what was best for us. You know, it's been said, I, I don't remember exactly who said it. It might have been Nancy Percy or, or someone that chaos inevitably results when choice is divorced from morality. And in the next episode, we're going to see some of that chaos that results from disobeying God, of being separated from God as a result of sin and determining for ourselves what is good and what is evil. But also in the next episode, we're going to see the provision that God has made for our sin and for our separation, one that allows us an opportunity to be reconciled to God. We'll be introduced to the first hint of the Messiah right here in chapter 3. I hope you'll join me. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.